Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 115, Traces of You. Welcome back to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. I've got an interesting interview for you today, uh, which I'll introduce in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, I actually recorded the interview a couple of weeks ago, the day, uh, two days before I flew from my home here in the Pacific Northwest down to Houston, Texas with my family for a, uh, for a few days of uh, family vacationing followed by the inaugural Rethinking Hell conference, uh, which was held Friday and Saturday, July 11th and 12th, uh, at the beautiful, beautiful, stunningly beautiful uh, Lanier Theological Library in Stone Chapel. It was an incredible experience, uh, and I would really encourage you to check out uh, RethinkingHell.com, particularly check out our YouTube channel. For some period of time, we'll have some of the videos up from the conference. Uh, You can go to YouTube.com slash user slash rethinking hell um, and just fast forward through all the parts where I'm in it <laughs> except for the interview with Edward Fudge you can't really get by uh, you can't really skip my part of that um, really was an incredible experience and, and we're looking forward to uh, continuing to plan our 2015 conference which will be probably accessible to more of you it'll be in LA uh, Lord willing same time of year late June 2015 so be on the lookout for that uh, if I haven't already mentioned it in previous episodes of the podcast, I'm uh, we, we recently published through Cascade Books, an imprint of Whip and Stock. We published our first book, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. And we've gotten some really interesting reviews online, really good ones, uh, from uh, traditionalists like my friend Nick Peters. Um, you know, he is, doesn't buy our arguments, but he said that the book was, was worth it. Um, uh, J.P. Holding, sorry, not J.P. Holding, yeah, yeah, J.P. Holding, he as well uh, said that the book is worth getting your hands on, even though he doesn't buy arguments and, and he's a traditionalist. Scott McKnight, who is no conditionalist, has been reviewing the book at his blog and has been having a lot of very positive and um, a lot of positive things to say that has generated a lot of discussion. Frank Viola recently uh, mentioned the book on his blog and recommended people pick it up. It's just been receiving a lot of attention that we're really blessed uh, by. We thank God for it, and uh, if you haven't gotten your hands on a copy, please do go to RethinkingHell.com and click on the link on the right side of the uh, right side of the page so that you can get your hands on a copy. It is available on Kindle, um, just by searching for Rethinking Hell at Amazon.com and clicking on the Kindle edition. And uh, I'm still crossing my fingers that uh, that one of these days we'll have it available on uh, as a Logos download as well. Um, speaking of which, Logos is serving me very well in my studies uh, at Liberty University. I've mentioned before on the podcast that I've begun a uh, bachelor in science, a bachelor of science degree in religion, just, uh, focused on theolo- theological and biblical studies at Liberty University Online, and I'm really enjoying that so far. Studies are going very well. I'm maintaining a 4.0 GPA, which is really encouraging. Gotten some really great, um, uh, some really great encouraging feedback from my. Uh, for my Theology 201 and 202 professor right now. Um, and uh, yeah, things are just going really well. I'm going to be starting in about a month, uh, Lord willing, again. Uh, I'll be starting Greek, not at 
Liberty because they don't offer Greek online at Liberty at the undergraduate level, but rather face-to-face in a very small class of maybe as few as three students at a local college here near where I work uh, called Trinity, Trinity, Trinity Lutheran College in Everett, Washington. I've spoken with the professor and um, I've got, already gotten my textbook. And, and actually, the really cool thing is that um, it's not koine that specifically that is uh, that is the subject of the class, but rather the broader category of Attic Greek, um, which I'm told from several people will actually s- make me far better uh, capable at, at, at uh, translating and interpreting the Greek of the New Testament than if I only did koine. And it'll, it'll set me up to be able to... Um, uh, to read the Church Fathers and other extra-biblical works as well, and uh, should make it all the easier to study Greek when I get into seminary as well, um, which, by the way, I'm still considering what my options are after my undergraduate. So if you have any recommendations, you know, don't hesitate to let me know. Given my conditionalism, um, it may be difficult to get into some of the seminaries I would like to, but uh, you know, there's some out there that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really considering. There's a... Uh, there's a European, a British um, seminary that does it completely online and it's accredited. And uh, I was encouraged to uh, consider them by by the dean or by one of the professors there named uh, Calvin Smith, I think was his name. Uh, so that's an option. I'm also considering Fuller. Uh, I know that Fuller has a certain reputation for being very liberal, and there, there's a certain extent to which that reputation is uh, true. But I wouldn't be going there because it's liberal. I would be going there to challenge myself. And, uh, you know, Dr. White, Dr. James White, he graduated Fuller as well and said that it challenged him and that you come, when you come out of the crucible on the other side, if you've remained faithful and you've grounded yourself and you've sought uh, – you know, mentoring and, and, and uh, grounding from fellow conservative believers and stuff. I think that when you come out the other end of the crucible, you'll actually be, you'll actually have been served far better than if you'd gone to a seminary where everybody agrees with you. So anyway, I'm, I'm exploring my options. Things are going real well. And at this point, I really am just rambling to try and fill time during my uh, monologue. So I'll just Stop right there and play the next promo in my rotation, which, because the Preterist podcast uh, seems to be down right now, just in case, I'm going to skip it this time around and play the next promo in my rotation, which is for my friend, Dr. Glenn Peoples. Say hello to my little friend. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. Ignore that URL that uh, my friend Glenn gave at the end of his promo there, that URL uh, is outdated. He's since rebranded. <laughs> His blog is now Right Reason, and it's available at rightreason.org, and you can get the podcast still called Say Hello to My Little Friend uh, at that website. I am a huge fan of Glenn's, and it was such an amazing pleasure and honor to be able to meet him in person, um, even have dinner with him uh, when I was in Houston just this past weekend. Uh, you know, Glenn and I don't see eye to eye on everything. How many of us actually do see eye to eye on everything in the first place? Um, but I am just a huge fan. His podcast will challenge you. You won't agree with everything that he says, but there are some things that you may learn. Uh, and 
I can't, I really can't recommend it enough. Um, it's he is the one who got me rethinking hell to begin with. Um, it's because of him that I've now convinced of uh, physicalism, and uh, you know there's just a host of other things that he covers on his blog and on his podcast, which I highly recommend. So do go to rightreason.org. Uh, click on the podcast link and, and and start listening today. With that, let's go ahead and move right into today's interview, and I will introduce the interview guest on the other side of the music. Welcome to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Today I've got a fascinating interview in store for you, this time focusing on the world of apologetics that makes up the latter half of this podcast's name, but coming at it from a bit of an interesting and, and perhaps unexpected angle. You see, as, as an apologist, I've not been one to think highly of arguments for the existence of God from religious experience, but my guest today might get you and me to begin to think, th- uh, think differently about things. His name is Joseph Hinman, and he joins me today to discuss his new book, The Trace of God, A Rational Warrant for Belief. Thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. Sure, nice to be here. Let's start by getting to know a little bit about you, if that's okay. Do you, do you mind sharing your testimony with us? Uh, you know, were you a believer from an early age, or is faith in Christ something that you came to later in life? Um, essentially, I grew up in the Church of Christ in an era when the Church of Christ was known for being legalistic and exclusivistic, and I was in Dallas, Texas, so they were southern legalistic and exclusivistic. And uh, I became an atheist in high school as a result of all of that. Um, I became, I, I found the Lord in college, like my third or fourth year of college, and I had a dramatic experience, but the thing that preceded that experience was meeting a friend of my sister, who was an, an older married woman, but she was profoundly religious and somewhat, she would be a paragon of the kind of religious experiences I'm talking about. And uh, she was like really cool, you know, a really cool person, and her husband was too. So that got my attention. And then I had this big experience where my brother was freaking out. He had taken some acid and he was like, you know, real agitated and perturbed and but he wouldn't let me take him to the hospital or anything like that or get any kind of help for him and i didn't know what to do i was really frantic so i just said you know i'm 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 at, i'm talking to jesus that my parents will believe in if you're really there please make him stop and i had just enough time to think what if this doesn't work or, you know, I know this is BS or something like that. And all of a sudden, man, he stopped. He went to sleep. I mean, he just laying on the floor. He's on his little mattress. He curled up and went to sleep. And I thought, wow, you know, uh, I put out a request. It was answered. Maybe I should start paying attention. <laughs> and so after, you know, I started reading the Bible and getting really into Jesus and you, you fell in love with Jesus' character in a way that I'd never thought about before, and then, you know, I had, I had a prayer, you know, born-again experience. I felt a presence of love and acceptance, so that was that was the beginning of it, and then um, 
I went through a long period of working in the working world. I didn't know what to do because finding the Lord changed all of my goals. Mm. I did. I previously had wanted to be a sociologist so that I could debunk religion. Mm. But now I didn't want to debunk religion. <laughs> I thought about maybe I want to be a minister. I didn't know. So I was just kind of testing the waters and then... Eventually, I, I finished school, I got my degree, and I felt led to go to seminary. So I went to, but but by that time, I was sort of having a a little problem with the Reagan era. So I went to a liberal seminary, i.e. Perkins, Southern Methodist University. And um, after Perkins, I went into the history of ideas at the University of Texas at Dallas. And the reason I did that is because by that time, the late 80s, early 90s, I'd been introduced to postmodernism, and I felt like that was the big challenge. So that's, you know, after four years of studying Derrida, I decided to change over and study 18th century British thought, mm. <laughs> which is kind of like uh, you're struggling to finish a, a banana split, so you decide to chuck that and get a... a bowl of vanilla ice cream, <laughs> something like that. So, mm. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned those things because the next question I was going to ask you was about your educational background. I mean, as you mentioned, you you, you did your undergrad in, in sociology and in and, and, and debate, if I understand correctly, and then you did theology and seminary, and then you went on to move on to intellectual history, philosophy of science, things like that. Of these and maybe other various areas of your study, what has really captured your interest the most and, and, and to this day and why? You know, all of it. Oh, okay. I had that's one. I was one of those guys that was on the twelve-year plan because I couldn't figure out which one I liked best. Mm. You know, but um, yeah, I you know I was I really fell in love with theology. I felt like Perkins was my place, and uh, you know I really wanted to be a theologian. And the the, the challenge of postmodernism was going to just be temporary. I was going to get back to the to the theological world after that. The thing that changed all of that was uh, my father had a major heart attack. My mother developed symptoms of Alzheimer's. My brother had been mentally ill for years, and I was sort of taking care of him to begin with, and then he and I together were taking care of our parents. And so it just, you know, the the doctoral program said, you're not making ne uh, necessary progress. And I said, well, you know, you want to come into my parents' deadpans and mm. let me do the studies, then I'll make pro progress again. So that they, they didn't take kindly to that kind of talk. Sure. So, you know, I just, I chose to, to care for my parents rather than finish my doctorate. And after that, after they died, you know, I was sort of in a state of limbo, rebuilding my faith and rebuilding my sense of who I was and stuff. And, I, you know, the thing that I grabbed hold of in that era was arguing with atheists on the Internet. <laughs> That's mm. what kept me going. And then as a, during that process, I discovered all of these studies, and one day it just dawned on me, hey, you know, why don't I write a book about these studies? And, I mean, I really felt led to write it, but... You know, I was I first thought about writing on the resurrection, but there's so many resurrection books. I just thought, you know, that's they don't need mine. There's nothing I could say about the resurrection that 
hasn't already been said by a lot of other people that said it better. So, but nobody talks about these studies. Right. They're they're virtually unknown to any religious group or thinker, except psychology of religion. I see. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about that in a moment. But you know, you mentioned these. Um <clears throat> the debating online with atheists, and, and presumably you're, uh, you develop some familiarity with various apologetics uh, arguments and stuff like that. D- did you feel, as a result of all that, that there was something lacking or, or you know, ineffective in the world of apologetics? Or, or was it just that it happened to be that this issue of religious experience, which we'll be talking about shortly, was just a new horizon that hadn't really been, you know, hadn't really been addressed when it comes to apologetics? Well, my own experiences, and during that, during my early days as a Christian, I, uh, as a result of the experiences I had that led me to the Lord, I studied mystical experience. Now, I didn't study it from the standpoint of uh, psychological studies. I read the works of the great mystics, but that was helpful because when I got to the point of studying the studies, I had a background in understanding at least what some of the stuff was about, and then. Um, I think the thing that's greatly lacking in, in any kind of God argument is the realization that you're not going to convert someone who doesn't want to be converted. Mm. There's no, there is no argument for God that's so surefire that you can't doubt it, because God is not a product of our, or a subject of our empirical scrutiny. God is beyond our ability to observe, because he's the foundation of reality. Mm. He's not a thing in the world, he's the basis of the world itself. So there's no way that you can take God out of context and put him under your microscope and look at him and go, oh yeah, there he is. So given that, if someone doesn't want to believe, they're not going to believe, and you can't make them believe. Yeah. So that's not really the purpose of doing apologetics. That's why I switched from... uh, proof this I'm proving God to the warrant the warrant is a logic it's a it's a valid stage in logical thought it's developed by a logician called Stephen Toolman who's a major major thinker of the 20th century and recognized as such and it's just the stage before you get to the proof mm. so in effect you're saying I don't I don't have to prove it all I have to do is show that I have a valid reason to believe it because most of most of the atheist attack consists of saying there's no reason to believe in God. Now a lot of times they will alter that mantra by saying there's no proof for God, but it's you know it really comes to the same thing basically. I see. Yeah, and, and the religion. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, the religious experience part, re- the argument from religious experience is thought to be very weak because. Everyone assumes that experiences are subjective, and it's it's thought of as being a non-starter because uh, it's just it's just like saying you know that God makes me real happy you know or something like that. Um, as we get into the interview, I'm sure you know I'll develop more of an explanation. Yeah. But those are not those are not the case, and I'll show you why. But I. First, want to you know? Let me hear your questions, and we'll do it your way. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of the problem with not getting my guests' questions in advance. Uh, you, you know, this this might turn out to have been 
uh, a somewhat silly question depending upon how you answer it, and, and I'll apologize in advance, but I'm going to take the risk. The, the image on the cover of your book is this almost bizarre collection of blue and orange spots and lines and swirls. And, you know, on the copyright page, you explain what it is. It's, it's this simulation, the simulated model of a Higgs boson yes. decaying into two jets of hadrons and electrons. The so-called God particle. Well, and that's, and that's what I wanted to ask you. What, what is the relevance, or is there relevance, a connection between the picture on the cover of your book and the subject matter? Well, that, that cover evolved out of a need to not be trite. The first, the first images we thought of were... Um, Footprints in the snow, sunsets, <laughs> stained glass windows. And the publisher said, no, 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 those are all stereotypes. They're all cliches. And I agreed with it. You know, these, that was, um, you know, and I thought about pictures of people praying. But then I thought, well, but a lot of people might think that, you know, I don't want to look like that. So, you know, it just occurred to me this, at the time we were choosing the cover a few months ago, they had all the, the new revelations about the Higgs boson, and there were articles in, in a, on atheist websites and blogs saying, does the Higgs boson disprove God, you know, and stuff like that. And the idea that you've that you got all these lines that's following the, the path of the particles after they're smashed in the atom smasher, and, uh, you know, that's a trace. You're tracing out the particles and so it just occurred to me well this is uh you know this is a this is symbolic of tracing out the existence of god i mean mm. it's not really doing it but it's symbolic of it i see so, and uh, yeah and we'll be talking about the the the, the um meaning behind the, the title the trace of god in a little bit you know you mentioned um uh, you're really good at anticipating what my questions are going to be. You mentioned a moment ago why it is, or some of the reasons why it is that the uh, that religious experience has not received a whole lot of, um, uh, you know, credibility when it comes to its ability to be used in apologetics arguments. But what what sorts of scientific advancements have been made over the past few decades that many of us are probably not familiar with, and and which enable us, if we take them, if if we really consider them, to take religious experience more seriously. Well, the major one is uh, called the mysticism scale, or the M scale for short. It was invented by uh, Ralph Hood, Jr., who's a professor of the psychology of religion at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And uh, the, the, the M scale was developed by Hood in the early 70s. And it, at the time, what he wanted to do was to validate the theory of a philosopher named W.T. Stace. And so it's important to understand what Stace did to know why he wanted to validate it. What all Stace did was to um, read the great mystics of the world and then digest and distill what they said and take them at their word and say, here, here are some criteria that tell us that one has had a real mystical experience as opposed to just wool gathering or having indigestion or something like that. Now, that assumes, of course, that there is something called a real mystical experience in order to talk about. But the fact that there are these people in every religion of the world who claim to have had this kind of experience might give us pause to think, yeah, maybe there is an experience like that. So Hood, Hood who is a, an enormous fan of William James, subscribes to a theory called um, the common core, which says that there's, there's one reality behind all the various religions, 
and that reality can be understood through an understanding of these kinds of experiences. And William James was kind of, I don't know if he used the phrase common core himself, but he was sort of, he's sort of an advocate of the common core theory. The alternative to the common core is called perennial philosophy, which basically makes a religion of, in its own right out of mysticism. So I, I, I don't um, go along with the perennial philosophy. So I think the common core is the logical alternative to it. And uh, so Hood did these studies, and he, all he did was take 32 items. An item is a question, and the questions are based upon uh, Hood's theory. So he's asking people questions like, have you ever felt the presence of a power that was greater than yourself? And things like that. And so if people answer all of these 32 items in a certain way, that is a way that is indicative of uh, space, then they're demonstrating that their experiences line up with what space said mystics experience. Mm. Well, the thing is, you might say, well, what if they read space? Well, <laughs> a lot of those studies were done in Iran and India and Japan in places where people don't, they don't speak English, they're peasants, they're not well-educated, and they don't know anything about, there's no way they could know about W.T. Stace. And the idea that they're going to just accidentally list all 32 items in the right way is, is ridiculous. I mean, that's just totally astronomically against the probabilities. So it's a pretty safe bet that that's not what's going on. So, so is it that the the these variously different people from all different sorts of walks of life in different countries, that the fact that they, to various degrees, answer these questions in similar ways is an indication that there's a genuine experience happening? Is, is right, that and when and when Stace has taken out the names of the deities, so so he's not saying, "Have you felt the presence of Jesus Christ?" He's saying, "Have you felt the presence of a superior?" superior powers, you know, something like that, transcendent being, something like that, uh, the, all of their explanations are the same. So that, you know, around the reason people think that, that religious experiences are different is because one guy says, oh, I experienced Buddha, another guy says, I experienced Muhammad, or I experienced Allah, mm. another guy says, I experienced Jesus. So we assume, oh, they're all having different experiences, but if you ask them, what was your experience of Allah like? What was your experience of Jesus like? They're saying the same thing. Now, when they go to explain what it means, they will say things according to the doctrine of their faith. But when they're just saying, you know, I felt a certain way, I had a certain sensation, all of those things are the same. And so that indicates, I mean, it's not proof that's true, it's not a proof, but it indicates very good reason to think that they are having the same kinds of experiences and thus they may be experiencing the same things. Mm. Just, yeah, I, I hear you. Tell us, unpack just a little bit more what, what kinds of experiences you're talking about because I think that when many people hear the phrase religious experience or mystical experience, mm -hmm. they're going to think about voices, visions, maybe even... Yeah, right, you right. Know, a lot of people say, uh, what, if, uh, what if God tells me to put my kid in the oven? Because that did happen once. Somebody thought God was saying to put the baby in the oven, and she murdered a baby. But the the kinds of mystical experience that Stace mapped out are not 
based on voices or visions. Now, mystics can have voices or visions, but that's not indicative of mysticism. And the reason is because in the larger picture of all the people around the world that conform to that theory, many of them are not having voices and visions, but they're all having a sense of two things. Um, one is the undifferentiated unity of all things, the sense that it's all one. There's a, there's a great oneness, a great unity to everything. And the second one is an all-pervasive sense of love, that there's a, some sort of higher power, higher form, higher mind or something that loves me and loves us all. It's based on love, and the universe itself is based on love. And as a result of that, you get what is called noetic experiences. Noetic refers to education, so it's saying, um, you know, you can actually learn from these experiences. The kinds of things you learn are like God loves you, you know, something like, I mean, you're not going to learn the answer to complicated math problems or anything specific, but things that pertain to the nature of life and the meaning of life, why you're here, things like that. Now, as far as what a mystical experience consists of, that's hard to say because the main thing about them is that the, the mysticism proper is beyond word, thought, or image. Mm. So the skeptic, thoroughgoing skeptic, has is probably well within his rights to say, hey, you know, this isn't anything. There's nothing that could be beyond word, thought, or image. Well, according to these guys, there is. Now, I think that that's, you know, there is a problem there. It's an epistemological problem because if it is beyond word, thought, or image, then probably they couldn't experience it. But, um, you know, I don't think it's entirely beyond word, thought, or image, but I think it's, it's, it's indexed by words like everything else is, and it's uh, bridged by metaphor. So, you know, all language is essentially metaphorical. So we're talking in metaphors anyway. And what all of these metaphors are pointing to is the issue. And what they seem to be, what the mystic realizes is that, that they're pointing to something that is beyond our understanding. You know, we can understand some things about it, but we can't understand it exhaustively. And it's something that blows away all of our neat little organized categories that we set up from our observations because it's beyond our observation. Mm. So all we can do is learn from it and go along with it. Interesting. Okay, well, you know, we touched on what I'm about to ask you a, a moment ago, but maybe we can just talk about it a little bit more. The subtitle of your book is A Rational Warrant for Belief. And, and you begin to explain this in Chapter 1 where you talk about what ought to be uh, the goal of God arguments. You write that God arguments need only engender confidence in the proposition belief in God is rationally warranted. Unpa unpack that for us a little bit. What, is, what more is sometimes expected, and why shouldn't we feel obligated to aim for it? Well, uh, it goes back to what I said at the beginning of, of the interview, that uh, people often assume, and apologists feed into this, that uh, we're going to prove the existence of God. We're going we're gonna to prove it so good that you can't doubt it, and that's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because God is not a thing in creation. Now, I, by that, I do not mean that God is not present in creation, but he's not limited to creation. He's not like, you know... He's not, he's not part of the created order. Yes, exactly. 
you know, the created order is made up of a bunch of things, and God is not one of them. Hmm. So you're not going to put God under a microscope and look at it. It's just like, you know, like you can't weigh a scale, you can't, with itself. You know, the thing, the, God is the basis of things that exist. He's not one of the things that he created. Hmm. And th- those are the only things that we can observe empirically are the things that are part of the created order. So we're not going to get proof of God. The best we can do is personal realization that is based on the power of God in our lives. And that can be, you know, that there's a there's a rational, when I say rational, I mean it can be established through logic. There's logical reasons to believe that that's what we're getting. But there's not a way to browbeat the opponent into, into acquiescence. Mm. based upon some foolproof, airtight argument that can't be doubted. Because as Descartes showed us, we can, we can set up a phony mock doubt of even our own existence. So there's nothing that we can't doubt if we're inclined to doubt. So then, so then what is rational warrant? Uh, define that for us. Warrant, uh, if you've got, you know, you're in law enforcement, you cop goes to arrest someone, he has to have a warrant. You want to search a house after a warrant that's a permission from a judge that says this officer can search this house and he can, you know, as long as he's looking for X, Y, and Z, there are some parameters of what he can do, what he can't do. And that's what it, that's, that's a good example of what warrant means. It's the, I think, uh, Stace defines it as the link between the premise and the conclusion makes the conclusion flow logically from the premise. Mm. And the, the classic example is, um, see if I can say this right, uh, so-and-so is a citizen of the British Crown. And how do you know that he's a citizen of the British Crown? Because he was born in Barbados. And so what does that mean? Well, the warrant... For, for concluding that he's a citizen of the crown is the knowledge that Barbados is part of the British Empire and therefore anyone born in Barbados is a citizen of the crown. So it's the thing between the premise and the conclusion that makes the conclusion flow logically. And uh, except we don't, you know, instead of going all the way and saying, therefore this proves God, you know, we just stop short and say, this is a good reason to think that there's a God. Now, how does – so this kind of takes us, I think, to the – In other words, it's a justification argument. It's not proof. It's justification. Right, and, and, that, and that sort of leads me to the next question I was going to ask, which is, which is about what it mean, what, what pr- prima facie justification is. What, what is prima facie standard, and, and, and why is it a reasonable burden for a God argument? Well, I base that on my experience in debate. In, and, and I have to put up the caveat that, in, that I was doing policy debate. But God, talking about God is not government policy. So <laughs> yeah. somebody might argue there's a, there's a slippage there. But in debate, in policy debate, prima facie means you present your case in the first speech, and you have to present the basic... Uh, aspects that cover all the affirmative burdens, like there's a harm, it's inherent, we have a solution, and if you 
you know, if you do that, then on face value, which is what prima facie means, your case appears to be a valid, sound case. But then, then it's the other team's burden to come back and say, yeah, but they didn't really establish a prima facie case because they didn't show X, Y, and Z. And so it's a way of, it's a way of deflecting the burden of proof where the atheist is always going to say, no, it's your burden of proof to prove God. I won't go into all the machinations I've seen <laughs> involving that, but there are many, many times that they will play with that tendency in ways that are logically invalid. And so this is a way of saying, uh, I've met, we met the burden that we have to meet, which is not, it's not proof, but it's a good reason to think there's a God. And so now it's your turn to show that we didn't meet it. So now it's I your see. burden of proof. Yeah, that's really good. That helps me to really understand what it was that you were writing in, in the book. And, and I guess the question I have for you is, why is that standard more sensible when it comes to the existence of God than the standards that atheists demand, which which you call ultimate fasche? I mean, you know, <laughs> doesn't don't extraordinary yeah. claims require extraordinary evidence? That kind of thing. No, I think that's a that's a silly idea. But, um, well, I I don't want to get into talking about that because it would take all day. But the, <laughs> okay. it's not necessarily a silly idea, but it just depends on how you push it. Mm. And you know, like I'll give you an example. Um, once I argued on a message board that, um, hey, the Vatican at the Vatican, there's this. Uh, there's this uh, x-ray of this guy named Charles Ann, whose lungs were ravaged with uh, tuberculosis, and he was dying. And as he was on his deathbed dying, he prayed to some saint, oh, St. Teresa of Lerneau, the, the, the little flower, she's called. And uh, the next morning, he was not only still alive, but the new x he was fine. He seemed like he was well. The new x-ray showed... His lungs were like new. There was no trace of any tuberculosis. And so that's the second miracle that put her over the top as a saint. Now, I'm not a Catholic. I'm not concerned with whether or not there's really a saint you can pray to. We'll bracket that. But, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, faith is what did it, not not a saint. But mm -hmm. in any case, these x-rays exist. So the guy goes, well... But it's a lie. The x-rays don't exist. I said, well, I talked to a member of the medical committee who has seen them. It's okay. Well, and all of that's preceded by the demand. Show me some hard scientific evidence, you know. Well, here it is, this x-ray. So no, the x-ray's a lie. And no, it's not a lie because I know someone who's seen them. Well, that guy's lying. Members of the medical committee are lying. Well, I can, you know, they say that they'll sell you the x-ray, so why don't you get, buy a copy of it, you know? So then he demands that I buy the copy. <laughs> so I say, okay, I'll sign up to buy the copy. Well, a week later, you know, have you, did you buy the copy? No, I can't contact the guy. He doesn't, you know, the, the med medical committee guy is not available to talk to right now. So he says, well, but you don't have that, you don't have that x-ray, so therefore it didn't happen. It's not true. Well, if I had a copy of the X-ray, would he believe me? No, he'd come up with some other reason. Of course, he would say I'm lying. Or if I, or if I showed <laughs> it to him, went to his house and showed it to him, he would say that it was fabricated. You know, I mean, you never have to believe if you don't want to. So that's uh, that's my point. That 
it's unreasonable to expect that we're going to get what they call extraordinary evidence. And besides, I think uh, several hundred studies, and I, I can pretty well document 200 at least, 200 studies that show that religious experience is either good for you or positive or not pathological, and they're all published in academic journals, and they're all peer-reviewed, that's pretty extraordinary as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Now, when they, when they give examples of what is extraordinary evidence, they say stuff like, oh, if the stars lined up and spelled out, Jesus is Lord, burn pain <laughs> is the worst pain, sign up now, you know, something like that. Um, well, that's just stupid. You know God's not going to do that. There are, there are a million reasons why God wouldn't do that. Mm. So why are 200 studies, good, academic, respectable studies, not extraordinary evidence? Well, because there's no law that says they are, and they don't want to admit there are. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk briefly uh, in the time that we've got remaining about Chapter 2, where you start to put some of these principles that we've been talking about into practice. Um, what I'm going to do is just sort of ask you to summarize the four highest level points in this outline that you've got in Chapter 2 at the beginning of it, uh, beginning first with what you call the co-determinate argument. So, so what is a co-determinate uh, or what you call the trace of God, going back to the title of your book? Right. And, and, and what can we conclude from its history, origins, content, and effects? The co-determinant is what other people might call the correlate. In other words, it's the thing that goes along with the object of study. Like, for example, the fingerprints are indicative of your hand having touched something. Footprints in the snow are indicative of the place where you stepped in the snow. So those are co-determinants because they're found wherever your fingers are found, your fingerprints are found. Wherever your foot touches the ground, your footprint is found. And so the religious experience of God is the co-determinant of God and vice versa. Because the effect of God's reality on people's lives when they come to actually sense that he's there is this profound transformative result that happens from having one of these experiences. That's what the studies show. The study you can't. The atheists are right. You can't get inside someone's head and study the, the texture of their experience, and you don't have to, because the studies are about the effect of having had the experience, mm. and they show that that effect is always positive and it's long term. So, the trace. The reason I call the co-determinant the trace is, uh, well, because I spent four years studying Derrida, and I wanted to make use of it, and Derrida talks, Derrida uses that term, a French term that means trace, and it actually, it refers to tracks in the snow, so that my, my footprint in the snow example comes from the explanation of that word. I won't go into the Deridian, uh, Deridian doctrine about that, but except to just say that uh, he is tracking the meaning of signifiers in language. So he's got uh, traces of meaning that he's following, and that meaning is always sliding away because Derrida's basic thesis is that there is no meaning. So, but you know, I'm I'm turning Derrida on his head and saying 
there is a trace of God, and it's a it's a, uh, a valid trace. And we know this, you know, we can we know it's valid because it's always positive, and it's always long term positive, and it has these effects. And when in chapter eight, where I give the tiebreakers, uh, the tiebreakers are all based on that premise: the premise that why is it always positive? You know, if it's if it's just an accident of brain chemistry, if it's just a, you know, something inherited, some spandrel or something that's inherited from a need for for excess food or something like that, why is it uh, why is it always positive? Why does it produce transformative effects on your life? And there are other there are other things. I'd have to look up the list now to see what they are. But no, that's okay. No, that's that's good. That's a good summary. Um, and and we'll come back to uh, applying that to you know rational warrant in a moment. But the second argument that you uh, that you have in this outline is is concerned with the same things you say, but from a different angle. And you call it the argument from epistemic judgment. Summarize right. that argument for us. Sure. My nickname for that argument is the Thomas Reed argument. I took it from. It, it, it reminds me of the epistemology of the, the Cartesian era and the, uh, the arguments that, that uh, Reed had with uh, uh, Hume. And uh, Thomas Reed was arguing that, you know, philosophers worry about whether or not we exist, but in the real world, we just go with what works. We don't have to... You know, and his one example he gave was uh, you're making love to a woman. You don't stop and say, "Now, are you real? Is is this really here?" You know, you just do it. You just make love. Or if you're on a battlefield and you see every everybody that gets ran through with these long, skinny knife things on the end of the gun bleeds and dies. So therefore, I'm not going to stand here and test out whether it'll hurt me. I'm going to get out of the way. Huh. And. uh you know that is uh, sort of what I'm saying about religious experience. It's it it does what religion promises to do, which is to transform your life, and it does work. So why doubt it? Why mm. set why why set yourself to doubting everything when this is what will do the job? And so the the argument from epistemic judgment takes the the premise that. Uh, what we used to call the the epistemologist fallacy is true. That is, we can't get outside of our own perceptions and check them to see that they're real. So what do you do? Well, you go with what works. You assume uh, every time I try to walk through these through this solid wall thing, I bounce off. But when I try to walk through this open door, I make it. So I'm going to walk through the open door, and I'm not going to try to walk through a solid wall. Hmm. And uh, I'm not going to stand in front of the cars on the freeway because I see other people try that. It doesn't work. So I'm not going to do it. I see. And, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you know, this well, sort of, well, let me just let me just bring it home here. Yeah, please. In terms of the God argument, I'm saying that we use a criteria for understanding what's real. And that criteria is that experiences are regular, they're consistent. They're shared by others or they're intersubjective. And that experience enables us to navigate in the world. It's like the, the bouncing off the door thing. So 
these studies show us that religious experiences stack up to that criteria. They are regular, they're consistent, they're intersubjective because millions of people around the world have them, and the studies show that they're experiencing the same kinds of things. And they enable navigation because, in the sense, not necessarily perceptual navigation, but emotionally so. In other words, several studies that I have are about um, people with, with physical challenges or chronic pain or people who are dying. And of those people, the ones who have mystical experiences are much better off psychologically and even physically. They, they, they cope with their pain better. They're better adjusted. They feel like they're growing as people. Some of them even look upon their challenge as a benefit, as a gift, Mm -hmm. because it has enabled them to understand the meaning of life. And so that that works to navigate through life in a certain way. And therefore, these experiences fit the criteria that we use to determine the reality of experiences. So we should trust them. We can trust them. I see. Okay. Uh, so then I'm gonna, the, the fourth of these points that I want to skip to now is that uh, is it freed from the need to prove, as you've sort of touched upon a few times during this interview, the, these arguments meet their prima facie burden for rational warrant. And you list eight criteria that you meet. I don't necessarily expect you to go through all eight of these criteria, but could you summarize some of them for us and, and how it is that these two arguments meet those criteria? Okay. Um do you have a list of the eight? Yeah, so it's it's documented perceptual evidence, regular perceptions, consistency, intersubjective verification, logical inference from both inductive and deductive, tangible measurable effect, no counter causality, counter causes defeated or demonstrated to be less likely, and then must be falsifiable. Right, all of these are true within the context of the religious experience and their verification by the M scale. That, you know, those things are not necessarily true of any other God argument. Like you can't subject a cosmological argument to empirical verification, but uh, you know you can subject religious experience to empirical verification if and only if what you're concerned with is the results or the effects of it, and not the texture of having the experience, mm. which we really don't need to go into because that's not really where the proof lies. So that warrant lies but um okay the uh the one about intersubjective well you know i think that that is pretty well borne out if you just think about the way we ask other people to verify reality for us like we say hey are, is it hot in here to you <laughs> do you want me to open the window you know i'm hot are you hot or did you see that did you you know so what just happened some some light flashed across the sky or something, you know, or somebody somebody we don't we don't like did something we like. So did you see that? Did that really happen? And so we do we do use uh, the verification test of other people. Did did other people experience it? What about what about the criteria of uh, uh, no counter causality? What what counter causes that are sometimes offered as possible explanations of religious experience are are, are defeated or demonstrated to be less likely? All right, that's uh, the last two chapters. One is the first, probably the major one, I guess, is uh, brain chemistry. 
atheists will often argue uh, religious experiences are caused by brain chemistry. It's just some accident of the way the chemicals stack up. And one of the, you know, there are several researchers who try to claim that they can manufacture religious experiences in the laboratory because, like, Pressinger will stimulate certain parts of your brain electronically and then you feel stuff and supposedly he can control religious experience that way. But the problem is, and then I got, I took this from John Hick, uh, when I, probably, I think about his last book that he wrote was a study of that particular phenomena. And he argues that none of those researchers are using any kind of verifiable standard to determine what is a mystical experience. So they're not using the M scale or anything like it. So they don't have a real they don't have a real way of saying that something was a mystical experience. And in fact, the example that he gives is uh, one of those researchers claiming that his subject had a mystical experience because uh, she dreamed about having sex with Jesus. And so that's supposed to be a mystical experience. Why? I don't know, because dreams have nothing to do with mystical experiences, much less such bizarre dreams. So it's just, you know, it's got Jesus in it, so it must be mystical. Mm. And, uh, you know, they don't, they don't have that kind of criteria. And there was another study um, that I take apart called the Borg study, where they were giving people uh, serotonin, and they were having certain kinds of experiences, and so they asserted they were mystical. But the standard they used, the standardized test, was one that is uh, set up to determine schizophrenia. And so come to find out, when you look at the assumptions that they list in the study, they made the assumption that mystical experience is schizophrenia. And so, therefore, finding schizophrenia is indicative of it being a mystical experience. <laughs> well, that's just circular reasoning. Right. But uh, then there's a good study, which is done by a guy named Griffiths and some other people from Johns Hopkins, and they gave people serotonin, but they did use the M scale. And their study shows that uh, the serotonin is linked with mystical experience as measured by the M scale. And so atheists might tend to say, ah, well, that proves that it's just the result of brain chemistry. But... I emailed Griffiths, and I asked him, have you disproved that God is involved in mystical experience? And he said, no, of course not. This, this is no kind of proof of that. And so that's why I call my eight tiebreakers tiebreakers, because there's a tie there. There's, we can say God may be using the physical apparatus of our perceptual array, i.e. brain chemistry and our other cognitive skills to clue us into his to his existence or it might be the result of brain chemistry alone there's it doesn't rule out god but it doesn't rule him in either so there's no way to tell well then i then i evoke the tiebreakers and the tiebreakers all uh, center around this this basic fact that's proven by so many studies that religious experience is long-term and positive, and it's life-transformative. It's not just... See, atheists try to reduce it by saying, oh, it's just getting happy. It's just making you happy. No, it's much more than being happy. And they, they, 
several researchers have this long list of stuff that it does, like self-authentication, self-actualization, uh, you know, less likely to be mentally ill, less likely to have depression, more uh, well-adjusted, you know, better adjusted, better able to cope with pain. The studies about the Rosario study about uh, chronic pain and people who are who are challenged, you know, and all this kind of thing. So, why would it do this? Why would it be this positive, life-transforming thing if it's just the result of brain chemistry and there's no basis to it or purpose in it? You would expect that if it was random like that, it would it would produce negative effects as often as it does positive effects. Mm. But the only negative effects that are produced in relation to it are all short-term. They all deal with anxiety and what uh, certain mystics call the dark night of the soul. But that's not, so- that's not something that lasts, and it's not debilitating. So, you know, it's just part of the deal. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, there's a ton of other things that you cover in the book, and I, I am going to encourage our listeners to uh, to get their hands on a copy. And, and in a few minutes at the end of the interview, I'll ask you how they can do so. But before before that, with the time that I've got left, I, w- I want to turn the tables a little bit and ask a couple of questions from the perspective of, uh, well, myself was being somebody that's very theologically and bibliologically conservative and evangelical, because I suspect that um, that my concerns might reflect many of the concerns that my listeners will have as, of as well. So, so I just have two questions for you from this perspective. While while your book argues that religious experience provides believers with a rational warrant for belief in God, do you argue that doctrine ought to, in some way, be based upon such religious experiences? No, I don't. I say that um, we shouldn't use it to formulate doctrine because. Doctrine is a different issue. Doctrine is not a matter of empirical verification. It's a matter of special revelation. Doctrine is something that, uh, in my viewpoint, being a Christian, uh, Jesus, you know, God entered humanity as a man, and we, that man had the name Jesus of Nazareth, and through that guise, he told us, uh, you know, he modeled modeled for us what divine character means, and he said things based upon his teachings. We make doctrines, and doctrines are what the teachings that the Church recognizes as being authenticated by Christ and verified by the apostles and passed on through the ascension of bishops. And that's very different than experiencing you know, in the in that in the passage in Jeremiah 31, which is again reflected in Hebrews 1, where he says, where God tells them, we're going to have a new covenant. The new covenant won't be like the old covenant, because they broke the old covenant. The new covenant will be in your heart. It'll be written on the heart. No longer will you say to your neighbor, know the Lord, because you'll all know me. So being a Christian is a priori, a relationship with God. It's not a matter of following rules on paper. It's a matter of knowing God in a real way. Mm. And uh, so that's, but, but we don't make doctrine based on that. We make doctrines based upon the, the, the official workings of the bishops and the church. And that's the way it's been since day one. And that's what Jesus authorized. So, 
you know, it's a, it's a different matter. It's a different case. Yeah. Well, and, and like you mentioned toward the very beginning of the interview, you know, these, these, you, the universality of, of this, of this, of religious experience, um, is, is explained in, in, you know, a, a variety of different contradictory terms, you know, those, some, uh, some, uh, attribute it to the work of Allah, some attribute it to the work of Yahweh and, and so forth. And so it seems to me that while one might be able to argue that the universality of the, what is at the root of the experience is, is, a, is an indication that something real and genuine is going on, um, it's, it's ability to be interpreted in so great a variety of ways means that, it's, that it seems to me to be really useless when it comes to actually developing doctrine from it. Is that fair? Yes, I agree. Okay. And well, I, you know, I, I think I, I may have said something like that, <laughs> it's hard to remember, but, uh, you know, the, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just a different, it's a different process. Doctrine yeah. is not, uh, doctrine is, is specific to a, a particular tradition. Yeah. But the, but the religious, the basic experience of God's reality is universal. It's in all cultures and all faiths. Okay. Well, that leads me to my second and, and bigger concern, um, which, bear with me for a moment to, to, to set this up. It's important to me. I think it'll be important to many of my listeners. Um, it, it, the concern that I have is sort of the opposite of what one reviewer of your book saw as a positive. Um, that reviewer wrote, quote, a Christianity that damned the rest of humanity, or worse, a Christian sect that, dem- that damned most Christians into the bargain, is not one that Joe or I would be comfortable with. If mystical experiences provide warrant for believing in God, they also provide evidence of God's interest in all of humanity, unquote. So, so what concerns me is that some might be inclined, as perhaps this reviewer was, to interpret what you argue to be genuine religious or mystical experiences had by people who make no claim to believe in Jesus Christ as evidence for some type of hopeful universalism or, or maybe even outright inclusivism. And if that's anywhere approximating your position, I, I don't want to argue with you, with you in this interview. That's not the point of the interview. But I would ask you, is it possible for the more conservative, even borderline fundamentalist among us to find value in your arguments from religious experience without opening the doors to universalism and inclusivism? Well, uh, I've talked to a lot of people about that, and people, I'm very surprised how people who I think are pretty conservative are going to find this to be really, uh, really unthinkable, and yet they don't bat an eye and say, oh, yeah, I see it that way. And that is this. Um, Paul says in Romans 2, uh, 6 through 14, essentially, first he says, to anyone who is seeking the good, glory and honor in this life and in the eternal life in the next. And then he says, uh, when Gentiles who are not born under the law do the things required in the law, they show that the Moral law is written on their hearts, and their hearts may excuse them. Now, I've seen very conservative Christians say, oh, but that just means that they can't really live up to it. But that's not what he says. He says their hearts may excuse them. If he really thought that it meant they couldn't live up to it, period, end of story, then he would have said that. And then in in, uh, Acts 17, 21-29, where he's talking on Mars Hill... He tells the Greeks, 
hey, you guys already know God. You just don't know who he is. You just don't know what he's really about. So I'm going to tell you what he's really about. But we all know him because we're, you know, and he quotes a Greek poet where he says, we are all his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. Most most Christians don't realize he's quoting a Greek poet, a pagan. Mm -hmm. He says that. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that I think that, oh, you don't need Jesus, just forget about that. No, of course I don't think that. I think Jesus came uh, into humanity as a man, as the incarnate Logos. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead, and his resurrection secures for us a hope and a future. But, as C.S. Lewis says, not everybody who is following Jesus understands that it's Jesus they're following. If they're following... Well, I go back to my allegory of the footnote footprints in the snow. You know, you're following these footprints. You don't know who they are. But, you know, say you're in a frozen wasteland and you can't, you know, you're, you're going to die if you don't find some shelter and you see these footprints and you know they're going somewhere, so you just start following them because that's all you've got to hope in. And then you wind up in a nice warm house, you know. And it turns out the nice warm the guy that whose footprints you've been following is Jesus. So you know that I mean, obviously that's not something that we can just assume easily will be the case, and therefore we don't need to spread the gospel. But it is a hope and a possibility. So if you if you you know you encounter the 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 atheist who says that you know God is so cruel because these people who never have a chance to be Christians are going to go to hell just because they lived in the Himalayas or someplace like that. Well, I just don't believe that. I don't think that God will do that. You know, I think they do have a chance because even though they didn't know the name Jesus, they're still following Jesus if, and only if, they're following the law that God put on their hearts, and they're seeking in their hearts the true Creator. I understand, and and I like I said, I'm I'm not going to challenge your interpretation of the text that you mentioned. Um, you know, that's not what I want to do. Uh, but but for somebody like myself who doesn't find that explanation of those texts to be um, uh, to be legitimate, do you think that that somebody like myself, a conservative, well, even more conservative than maybe the ones you've been talking about? Well, could, let me could, put it this way: I think any Christian who wants to make an argument. Any Christian who wants to answer the atheist jibe, there's no scientific evidence for God, will find value in this book. And you can figure out how to explain the universal nature of the experiences. Well, one way that I would do it, if I were conservative, if I were extremely conservative in that way, would be to think about the concept of prevenient grace. That God has to draw people. God is drawing, trying to draw everyone to Christ. How's he going to do it? Well, one way would be through letting us feel his presence. I see. So, 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 and I'm not an Arminian. I don't believe the Bible teaches prevenient grace. But if I did, then what I could do oh, is... Oh, no, there goes my example. <laughs> well, no, 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 but that's okay, because I, I, I love my Arminian brothers and sisters in Christ. But the point <laughs> I was going to say is, uh, the, so, so one could say that the religious experiences that are universal um, and, and universally point to the reality of, of God's existence isn't a saving experience. It's a, it's a, it's a drawing experience, or, or it's an experience that God exists, but it's not a saving one, basically. Well, yes, but, but I, I agree with you. I, I'm not, you know, if I, I didn't mean to ever imply that this is the experience of salvation, but at the same time, uh, 
the people people who uh, have who claim born again experiences have been tested on the M scale, and their born again experiences score high on the M scale. So, the born again experience is part of this larger umbrella of spiritual experience. Sure, I think that makes sense. My, my only point is just to say it seems to me that a conservative Christian like myself could say that religious experience exists and can be experienced outside of a saving relationship in Christ, but it's not that experience that saves. The, the, ex- yes, the right. experience can be experienced by people who are saved because they've placed their faith in Christ. Right. I, now, I know that's not your position necessarily, but I'm just saying that's something a conserv- an extremely conservative Christian like myself could say. That's yes. That's what I'm agreeing to. That is a okay. possible uh, conservative position. And then, and then but, us, us um, crazy Calvinists just have to think of a better way. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, I just yes. Let me make my pitch for Christian unity. I think okay. that you know, I hey, I you know, we all have differences, and we don't. As the second chapter of Acts said, we don't all read the Bible alike. So, as long as we're aware of our differences and we understand how to move around them, you know, what the important thing is, to me, the important thing is Jesus, the gospel, you know, Jesus wants us to exhibit his love in the world, and that's what binds us in unity, even though we see the the ramifications of it differently. Yeah. But well, anyway. No, that's that's great. I I, I am a big uh, proponent proponent of unity in the body of Christ as a as a as an annihilationist. That's something I have to counter quite frequently is is you know, disunity. So um so yeah, I I, I would uh, echo that that urge that Christians would would be united in Christ and on the essentials of the faith. Um, and I think that's a really good way to wrap things up. Um. As I mentioned to you, I've only just begun to dig into your book, and, and I'm really looking forward to taking more time to ingest and digest it, and I hope that my listeners are intrigued enough to do the same. If they are, how do you recommend that they go uh, that they get their hands on a copy of your book? What's the um, best way for them to do Well, we're doing, the publisher is small and struggling, so they do print on demand, and that means you go to Amazon. It's also It might be available on other things like... Uh, Borders or something, but I, but I know it's on Amazon. And you look, you put in the Trace of God by Joseph Hinman, and order it on Amazon. And then the, you can also go through the publisher, which is called Grand Viaduct, and it might be cheaper if you do that. And it's also going to be uh, available in uh, electronic Kindle. And I'm not sure when exactly that's going to hit the market, but it will be available in Kindle. And uh, you know that's that's the first thing is order it through Amazon. Okay, I'll inc- I'll make I'll include a link to its uh, Amazon presence in in the show notes right, of this I podcast. That. And is there some? I mean, you personally, or or I mean, are you available online? Do you have a website or anything like that that you want me to link to? Uh, as well? Metacroc's blog, the religious a priori, atheist watch, and my old site Doxa is still up. So those are the major ways to see what I'm doing online. Okay. And do you, if you're not comfortable sharing this, that's okay. But do you have a way that people could get a hold of you via email or something if they have further questions uh, for you? Yeah, you can. My, my spam catcher is uh, metacroc, M-E-T-A-C-R-O-C-K, at um, AOL.com. And that's why, that's why the blog is called Metacroc's Blog. That was, that's my screen name. 
And um, I just decided, you know, the, when when the atheist connected the dots and, and said, hey, this Joseph Hinman has this book, is Metacroc, then I decided, well, you know, there's no point in beating around the bush, you know, Joe <laughs> Hinman is Metacroc, so big deal. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed our time together, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Um, thank you so much. Sure, I appreciate it. I, I enjoyed your questions, and I enjoyed talking with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview and found it as intriguing as I did. Stay tuned in about a month from now for a Christological debate between my friend Michael Burgos and Cornell Thomas, the author of a book defending adoptionism. Until then... <laughs>